We don't aim to solve all the world's problems, but we do offer you peace of mind, hope, laughter, and ideas on how you can help improve circumstances and communities. Good change is for you. For us, we take to heart your concerns about anger, injustice, and helplessness, the pain that we each feel, and give you something better to witness, something better to believe in. In many ways, this podcast is the opposite of self-help. It's us help. We draw attention to kindness, to the better angels of our nature. We swap stories that bring smiles, deep breaths, inspiration, and ideas to help us evolve. We introduce you to people who are positively transforming lives, leaders of movements, or everyday heroes who are making change. Good change. Good Change highlights the common ground we share, the unlimited positive impact of a single person, and the greater good. Welcome to Good Change, a podcast about making a world of difference. Please welcome your host and Good Change maker, Ken Streeter. Hi there, we're back with Jib Ellison, founder of Project Raft, Russians and Americans for Teamwork, an organization that he created and that dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of people uh, participated in, whether it was a citizen diplomacy trip in the 80s or a rally, an international rafting competition. And uh, we spoke earlier about the impact that Jib had on, uh, on uh, lives throughout the, the world and him not really realizing maybe that at the time that he'd made a significant impact, but I, I can tell you from my time with Jib and others uh, involved with Project Raft that in addition to helping with uh, reducing the conflict between countries and by extension the potential of nuclear war, um, just the friendships and the relationships that have expanded beyond border uh, made a huge difference in my life. And so Jib, I'm forever grateful to you for the work that you did with Project Raft. And um, I'm excited now to talk about this other big thing that you're doing, uh, Blue Sky. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Blue Sky um, is a uh, consultancy, uh, management consultancy, uh, technically, which means simply we work with uh, organizations of all sorts, primarily corporations, but sometimes with foundations, sometimes with NGOs, sometimes with industry associations, conglomerations of businesses to um, help them figure out what to do and how to do it when it comes to uh, their sustainability aspirations. Meaning they wanna minimize the negative unintended impacts of their business usually environmentally, sometimes socially, sometimes both. Um, and increasingly, these are also uh, organizations that want to turn the tide and have measurably positive regenerative outcomes. That's kind of the new ground um, we're working in today. And so I've been doing this for about 15 years can you explain the difference between sustainability and regenerative or sustainable and regenerative? Yeah, I, I mean, it's in the name, um, inherent in the name. So sustainability, if you reach sustainability, you, you would have, in a sense, reached stasis. Uh, 
if you are regenerating, um, you, in contrast, are rebuilding. And the reason, the concept, again, the story, back to these, these stories we create of regeneration, I, I feel is, is more apt in our time is, you know, human beings, by virtue of our, of our impact on the planet of being so many of us, our industrialization, the way we organize, the way we um, bring food and materials to people all over the world is, a, is an amazing feat. And, and actually, you know, should not be thrown out. Hmm. However, it's had this unintended impact. It's been built on a lot of um, oppression of particularly indigenous people along the way, a lot of violence um, among various groups along the way, and, and certainly a, a diminishment of the ecological world that we live within in terms of all the other creatures and and now we're we have such an impact going based on our fossil fuel use that we're changing literally influencing as a species um, the change of our climate which has grave implications for our children and particularly our children's children so um so the idea between sustainability would say, look, just stop doing bad things <laughs> if you're a person or, or a company. Uh, regeneration would say, now, stop doing bad things, yes, but how do we make the soil healthier? How do we bring the carbon out of the atmosphere, you know, the fugitive carbon, and bring it back down and make it more durable in, in, in ways that we can't understand? How do we um, make communities that may, that thrive, um, you know, so yes, we want to stop, um, poverty and we want to, um, stop violence in our neighborhoods on a social level, or we want to stop, you know, egregious labor practices in some of the supply chains in the world. But what do we want? Sustainability is more about like stopping all those bad things from happening. Regeneration, in my mind, is more about, well, what is it? What's the beautiful picture we, we want to paint? And then let's go about painting it. That's a great definition. And so you, you started Blue Sky with the idea of sustainability and have grown now or evolved or elevated to the idea of regeneration, um, partly out of need. I'm thinking that at one point, sustainability may have been all we needed. And now it's, we're at a point globally and uh, even culturally that regeneration is, is vital. And who, who's been hiring you to help? Uh, who's been hiring, asking you uh, to help them with instituting some of these programs? Um, well, the, you know, the backstory has bizarre analogs <laughs> to Project Raft, which I'll give you just briefly. So. Um, Along the way, I fell in love after Project Raft wound down, and that's a whole story in and of itself, which has to do with Norwegians breaking a whaling treaty, us 
being unable to organize a big event there that was going to be sponsored by the Olympic committee and meeting in 40 days to change, move 500 rafters from 23 countries from Norway to what ended up being Turkey to do one of these big events. And we pulled it off, but we were, that was it. It was over. <laughs> that, that was the end of, of, your, of your capacity, your reservoir capacity to- Exactly. At that yeah, point you were older in your twenties and you'd lost a little bit of juice. Yeah, no, we just, we just, we, no, it was, it took everything we had emotionally, physically and financially mm. to pull it off. And, uh, yeah, so it was that was that was the, the abrupt conclusion to Project Raft uh, in 1993, the but end wanna, of 1993. I want to add that if if it ended abruptly, the amount of work between '87 and '93, uh, the amount of change, the amount of good change that Project Raft manifested, uh, is irreplaceable, and it has a chapter in the history of global relationships. Well, thank you, Ken. Um, but it's because of people like you who came and participated. And, and I mean, that's what's so amazing. To me, the most amazing thing about Project Raft is all the story, all the connections and things that happened as a result of people meeting on these trips and marriages and businesses and other exchanges in, in other towns. And, and I mean, this, you know, just watching the, how the network evolved completely organically is, and still continues to this day is, is super impressive. So, um, so, but what happened was, so Project Raft was over, that, that chapter was over. Um, it was not a, a particularly lucrative how about completely not lucrative? So I, I needed I needed a job, and I'd fallen in love, and um, um, through a bizarre twist, which I will not go into, I about at the same time, uh, three things happened. I got married. Uh, I bought a property four miles out of dirt road off the grid, you know, way in Western Sonoma County um, in a place that I didn't, you know, in a t nearby a town half an hour away that I didn't know anybody. And I became a management consultant. And, and I became a management consultant in large part because a guy I went to college with and went, was a philosophy major with, um, while I'd gone to Russia, he'd gone into the Marine Corps and then he'd gone, gotten his MBA, and he was working as a more traditional management consultant in a big, big hmm. company. And we we hatched this idea to to form a company where we would mix his kind of analytic management consulting business focused efforts together with all my kind of crazy team building and leadership development skills which had been worn, learned largely experientially on all these trips and we figured there was a niche in the market so being somewhat naive i became a management consultant and and so um and i did that for about eight years 
and became pretty good at it. So I taught him and our other two partners that started the firm uh, all this kind of, let's just call it the soft side, the tribal side of, mm. of organizational development and, you know, motivation, trust, um, leadership, and how to kind of do that work with groups of people. And then they in turn taught me how to actually, you know, work an Excel spreadsheet and, and do the rigorous analytic that, that underpin any good kind of management consultant work. But mm -hmm. still to this day, very few firms do both. Yep. And as I like to say, you know, there's, there's right answer consulting, but the right answer does not alone make the right set of actions and behaviors. And that's why there's so many, I see the bunch of books behind you in the zoom screen here, yeah. you know, like there's a lot of good books and yet that tell you almost exactly what you need to do to live a good, healthy, engaged life, to be a good father, to be a good business person, to be a good husband, whatever. And yet how many of us struggle with implementing? Yeah. So, so you need both. You need a roadmap but you need the will, the skill, the emotional maturity, and the just grit to stay on the path. Hmm. Um, and so that was what we mixed. So I was doing this. We were pretty successful. I had the first real job in my life. And we had a daughter. And um, I went along the way. I went to a lecture um, from a guy named Carl Henrik Robert, a, a Swedish oncologist. And he'd started a nonprofit in Sweden called The Natural Step. And The Natural Step, what he had done as a scientist, he had, um, it's a fascinating story, which I, I, I won't go into, but I encourage people to check it out. It's really one of the very early groups that articulated what sustainability means as it pertains to humanity and, and, and its institutions. So tell us, and tell us his name again in the project. Carl Henrik Robert and the name of the organization is and was the natural step, the natural step. Okay. The natural step. And so I went to see this lecture in San Francisco and there's this, you know, Swedish oncologist standing <laughs> on the stage and he puts up this slide with four kind of the four principles of humanity living sustainably on planet earth. And being one of the things about management consultants as a general rule is we, we love frameworks. Mm. You know, we love how do you take complexity and turn it into simple yet non-trivial um, ways of communicating complexity. Mm -hmm. um, and that's exactly what, in my opinion, this guy did. And he did it in a, in a multi-stakeholder way. He'd, he'd been working for years with hundreds of scientists all over the world in various roundtable formats to, to kind of derive these four principles for sustaining life on planet Earth. And I was just like, oh my God, it was just like the, the Russia thing is like, this is the missing piece because at, by that point, 
can, I'd become good. What I was doing was, was morally neutral, meaning I could help pretty much anybody, a business leader usually, achieve with and through his team, his or her team, mm. just about anything they aspired to do. So I could would, make them more effective. Yeah. So they would say, we want to do this better. And you would construct a system with certain standards and certain behaviors that allowed them to do that thing better. Yeah. And, and the business strategy, like the financial side, like if you want to enter a new market, here's, here's in a sense, quote unquote, the right answer. Mm -hmm. And here's who you need to be in order to execute on the right answer. And, and so, but it was just, you know, it was kind of neutral as, uh, you know, as I quipped at the time, not feeling all that good about it, even though I, I always worked for ethical clients and whatnot, but quite frankly, if, if a landmine company had come to us and said, Hey, we want to make, 10 times more land and sell 10 times more landmines, we probably could have been good at helping them figure out what to do and how to do it. Yeah. Which is so, an interesting, it's an interesting contradiction to what you presented earlier, what we were talking about earlier, after watching the three day onslaught of information uh, that concluded with the summary, do what you love. Yeah. Exactly. And it was painful. So my, my years at what was the name of the organization was the Trium Group and still is. It's still thriving today as a management consultancy. And I'm very proud to have been a founder and they do amazing work. Um, and, um, you know, but it was, it was really about building trust within a team you know you you can build a trust within a team to to run a river in siberia well is that really doing anything good for yeah. the world you can build trust in a team that's building landmines you can build trust in a team that's working on a cure for cancer mm -hmm. and you'll make all of those efforts more effective at achieving their desired outcomes yeah than you would otherwise. So, so that's what we did. And, and the good news is, <laughs> I mean, you know me well, I mean, I was horrible at selling this work of the Trium group to anybody or any organization that I didn't align with their values. So for good or for bad, I ended up only working with companies and people that I aligned with, but nonetheless, it was still, you know, I'd gotten really good at a technique. Mm -hmm. So the same way I'd been good at being a river guide. Yeah. Or creating river trips. Or yeah. creating, creating a nonprofit organization that did global well, citizen work. Well, that, yes. Well, that was where the analogy came in. So I go, I watch this thing. He gives the four principles, which are great. And it just hits me like a ton of bricks. Like this is the missing piece. I can help people figure out what to do. So all the analytic right answer stuff. Yeah. I can figure out how to help them, how to do it, who they need to be in order to execute on this right answer stuff and help them become that. But what's missing is the North star. 
the reason yeah. for being. Yeah. And the good news is, uh, particularly 15 years ago when this was all going down, it's a, it's a hugely profitable paradigm hmm. in the short term because there's a lot of waste. Businesses are filled with waste. As efficient as they are at delivering goods and services to the world, they're filled with waste. And, 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 and you know, kind of step one in any sustainability regime is, is rooting out waste of all sorts because when you have waste in materials, it costs you money, but it also has a cost to the planet to having all that wasted materials, be yeah. it food, be it plastics, be it whatever you want throughout these value chains. So, so I was like, oh my gosh, this is, the, this is better than sliced bread. I mean, this is, this is, this is a can of corn. And is that, is that part of a can of corn? <laughs> yeah, Jim and I were talking before we got online about uh, different expressions and I asked him if he'd ever heard of the expression, that's oh, a can of corn. And uh, he hadn't, and I hadn't heard of it up until a couple of years ago, but it came from a friend of mine who used to be a, a grocery stocker, a guy that would work, you know, all night long putting canned goods on shelves. And uh, his expression to say, oh, that's pretty easy to accomplish was, oh, that's a can of corn, which means it's kind of easy to stack a can of corn. So I'm taking it then that the can of corn was not the altruism, the, the, the shelf to put the can of corn on was not the altruism of these companies, but it's, it started at the very least with the idea that you can root out inefficiencies, which can save you some money. Yeah, but, 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 but again, like the, the Russia analogy, this is the right thing to do. Right on. And that's the easiest way to start in a journey. So I'm a big advocate when you're trying to do something big and gnarly and, you know, people say, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Yeah. Well, when you're dealing with things, big ideas, which I love, as you know, um, find a quick win. Mm. So you, mm. you were asking about some, some tips, like a quick win, like don't start with, a manifestation of a concept or an idea that's going to take you five years right. to, to actually complete. Yeah. Now, some people can do that. I'm not one of them. Most people aren't. And so the whole notion of, of rooting out waste, which is now the jargon is called eco-efficiency, yeah. uh, is a quick, generally speaking, a quick win. You can save money and reduce your negative impact right and what's and, not to like and to boil this down to street level and a quick win if somebody is listening or watching and they're saying i want to manifest good change you're suggesting that whatever they take on whatever they choose to participate in whatever they choose to create that a quick win be part of that uh, decision or that commitment because of why well it brings momentum. Yeah. It's, 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 it's fantastic. You get a win. It's real. It's, you know, one of the challenges in the world I live in is it, it, people talk like we're talking, there's a million podcasts, there's a million books. And it's one of the frustrations I have with my industry, which is there's a lot more emphasis on the work it takes to write a book or make a podcast or do a document or come up with something than there isn't actually doing. It. Yeah. Um, 
And there's good reasons for all of that, but we've become a kind of a society of journalists yeah. uh, and, and assessors as yeah. opposed to people on the field. I, I'm far more interested in people on the field. Right. Uh, and quick wins give you that because right. all of a sudden, like I'll, I'll give you a very simplistic example of, of a quick win in the world I was in is like, we would go into a, a factory or, or a home office and we, you know, look at the light bulbs. And at the, in the day, half of them were, were incandescent light bulbs. And they just come out with these things called CFLs and, and LEDs were just kind of coming out and they cost more, but the payback was less than in a, you know, in an average home or, or office building it was less than a year. And then after you got the payback for the extra investment, you're just, it's just like putting profit into your business. It's as good as income. And, and everybody just treated all these kinds of things as fixed costs. So that was like, and that just for a business person whose job it is, is to manage costs and get things flowing right and all the sorts of things that businesses do. You know, I was like, wow. I never even thought about that. <laughs> you can change a light bulb. What else can we do? And so progressively, it, it, what happens is you build momentum and then that happens internally. So it's the same with like, if you want to like get on a diet, you want to work out, you want to do anything, start with something, you, you know this, start yeah. with something small, do it, notice the results, acknowledge the results, and then do it again. And then maybe ramp it up a little bit and then yeah. ramp it up. And next thing you know, you're living a life that's uh, of, of a different quality than before. Yeah, there's, there's nothing greater for expanding your perception of your capacity than to have uh, a series of small successes for that umbrella to just, or, or umbrella or whatever metaphor you want to use to just grow exponentially yeah. which is the realization that you can do more courtesy of whatever you just did that, albeit small, it's the stepping stone to increasing your perception of your capacity. Perfectly well said. That's absolutely right. I mean, human being, and this, you know, now we're going philosophical, but we, since we only have about nine more minutes, I'll go, go all the way, you know, like, human possibility really is almost, I wouldn't say unlimited, but we are so much more limited as individuals and certainly collectively in terms of what's possible than we can almost imagine in our wildest dreams. Yeah. Now, human probability is not so big. <laughs> It's far, far narrower in scope. Hmm. Uh, and I think one of the things I personally, both individually, just within myself and certainly in my work, I'm constantly trying to press open possibility uh, in kind of contra diction or, or, you know, we're against the pressure of human probability, you know, mm -hmm. businesses and, and organizations in general are, are tend to be inherently uh, 
um, risk adverse people are risk adverse. And even if I'm in pain, at least I understand it. I know when I get up in the morning and the sun rises, I'm going to be in the same pain I was yesterday. And in some respects, that's a comfort, a bizarre comfort. Mm-hmm. And if I wake up with the weight off my shoulders and everything going well, I'm going to go immediately. There's something wrong with me. Mm. So, so how do you, how do you bridge that gap? How do you bridge the gap between possibility and probability? Is it, does it, does it boil down to illustrating the benefit of a quick win? No, uh, no, actually. So this gets to the technique of what we do. Um, you, so So again, a little more background on consulting. Typically, you hire a management consultant to to help you figure out what to do. And they they do some interviews. They talk to people. They understand the industry, the dynamics, the competitive pressures, the regulatory pressures, whatever it is. And then they go back. And as I like to say, they lock themselves in a basement with a bunch of Excel spreadsheets. And they crank it all out. They put together a nice document and then there's a meeting with the CEO or whoever the client is inside a business. And they say, here, we figured it out. You hired us to figure it out and we figured it out. And here's your answer. And, you know, this is um, pretty, pretty typical. And if you're a good consultant, it probably is close to a right answer. It may not be the right answer, but it's probably a right answer to solve whatever it is you're looking for. However, what's completely absent from that process are the people who actually have to own, quote unquote, the execution, the doing of whatever's in that plan. Yeah. So, so the way back to your question this it's it's so obvious, but it's so rarely done by management consultants. Is you do it together with the client from the beginning. So you not only do you interview the client, you actually work with them along the way with the messy side of actually coming up with the right answer. Why? Because one, they always know things that you will never know about their company, the, the strengths, the weaknesses, the industry, the customers, all that stuff. Or if, if they don't know better, they have a strong point of view, which will inform their ability to actually do anything in the future, mm-hmm. right? What their sense of possibility is. So, so anyway, it's messy, but it works. So if you develop a plan with the people who have to actually take, because I don't, I I mean, my job is to help develop a a plan that is executable, that people are excited and engaged and committed to doing. That's my job. Hmm. And sometimes we actually do, we, we do outsource our services in, in doing the work we have. That has happened. But generally speaking, you hired me to help you figure out what to do and to get, get going. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so anyway, that's, that's how you do it. And then people get excited. And within that plan, there's a quick win. Oh, and then right. when they get the quick win, they're like, wow, yeah, this is great. And 
I got some more and I want to do some more of this. And this is making my business stronger. And this is my kids. When we sit down and have dinner at night, I tell them about what I'm doing and it's no longer boring. They're like, yeah, dad, that's great. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much that factors in yeah. to these huge decisions that have far reaching financial and social consequences inside businesses is the children of these executives. Yeah. So uh, as you were describing the need to work with them, to have it be messy, to get to know them, for them to get to know you, it sounded an awful lot like the start of a rafting trip in a paddle boat. Yeah. And, and then after that first rapid is successfully want, run, you have a quick win. And the, the anchor in all of this is, is basically survival and excitement and reward and that's exactly what you're talking about when you're describing the emotional connection to your work uh, that you can bring home and share with your kids who are really why you're doing all of this in the first place. Yeah, I think that's very well said. It's super well said. So, so that, that, that's, I mean, I, so back to the narrative part of the story. So I go see this thing. I watch this four principles of sustainability. I go, Oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I go back to my partners. I say, partners, I cracked the code. Like, <laughs> this, this is the future yeah. of management consulting. And can you, can you say quickly what those four principles are? Yeah. Um, the first is, I mean, I'm going to put it in very simplistic terms. Don't over harvest hmm. things systematically. So the, the key piece to this is systematic I mean on a global scale. Yeah. So if you if you cut down all the world's forests, yeah. It's over. bad things happens. Right. I mean that's basically what they said. So basically the principle one is don't over harvest, don't take too many fish out of the sea, don't cut down too many forests, etc. Two, don't systematically take carbon that's sequestered in the biosphere, basically on planet earth and systematically take it out and in various ways, stick it out into the atmosphere. Right. If you do that too much for too long, too systematically, bad things happen. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't tell you what the bad things are. They just tell you bad things happen. Three, uh, don't create new chemicals, new, new, things. It could be biotech, it could be chemicals, and do the same thing. Create them and release them into yeah. the universe, uh, the Earth's universe. And if you do too much of that, and, and at the time when he was creating this ozone depletion because of PFPs, I don't know if you remember all that, was mm -hmm. a big issue. PFPs are a man-made chemical. Yeah that once it gets up there, it destroys the ozone layer. So that was the analogy there. So you do too much of that for too long, bad things happen. And then the third, the fourth one, which is a great one is handle poverty, abject poverty, hmm. because the person confronted with starving to death will cut down the last tree. They will release wow. PFPs into the atmosphere and they will do whatever it takes to survive. Yeah. And so he put these up there. I'm like, oh, greatest things to sliced bread. Like if every business just aligns with 
these principles, they're going to be more, res- I didn't have the word terminology, but they're going to be more resilient. They're going to be better positioned competitively because this is just like the way the world works. That's mm-hmm. all he's articulating is just act in line with gravity. Yeah. Right. Like, could you imagine if we all tried to like, you know, avoid gravity, the, the, the person or the organization that acknowledged gravity would be in much better position <laughs> yeah. Yeah. to thrive. So, so anyway, I go to my partners. I say, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Look, these four principles, we just bring this into everything that we do. And they just looked at me with glazed eyes. And they said a version of it. This is such a great idea. Somebody else would be doing it. And I'm like, no, but that's precisely why this is a great idea. Nobody's doing it. Yeah. And they're like, uh, whatever, Ellison, just make your quota, sell your stuff, do your work. You can do it however you want. So I kept trying to like integrate it. So I, unsuccessfully. And again, it was a similar to the early project raft. And then I went to all the smartest people I knew from the biggest consultancies and said, Hey, I think this is great. And they just looked at me with glazed eyes and like, yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> kid go away. So finally I just took a sabbatical. I said, I'm going to take a year off. And I'm going to just dedicate myself to this. And, um, so I did. And uh, set up a phone <laughs> above the coffee shop in downtown Healdsburg in a closet, basically. So there's some a phone there's a, and a computer. There's a common thread here about <laughs> fledgling enterprises having phones and closets. Maybe that's the key to the whole thing. Is that the key to the whole be. thing? I think it might be. So, <laughs> uh, in any case, uh, and again, it was just luck, timing. Um, I a really good friend of mine was ran a, a large environmental nonprofit that had um, on his board of directors, many captains of industry. Mm. So I called him up first and I said, look, I got the greatest idea since sliced bread. But again, this is, this is cross appropriation. So I went to the NGO and I said, you've got all these people on your board of directors who I know give you a million dollars a year personally to do conservation work. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, I know their companies are doing nothing. Right. Zero. And sometimes worse than zero. The opposite of zero. Yeah. And so I said, and this is the greatest, you know, my kind of spiel at the time, this is the greatest untapped source of competitive advantage in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And it still is, in my opinion. Um, and I think it's been proven out at the time. That was just a wild assertion based on no evidence whatsoever. Yeah. There was no green movement back then. There was no, no- there was, well, there was, but it was really Greenpeace like. So every yeah. company, big company with a brand, was terrified that they were going to be attacked. So, but that was the no one thought of it as a positive thing for their business. It was a cost, if anything, uh, a risk. The phrase corporate social responsibility had not been hatched at this point. No, not at all. And so I went to my friend, Peter, and a little like going to Cynthia Lazaroff Mm -hmm. back in the day, he said, huh, that's an interesting idea. No one's ever really thought about that. Well, let me, you know, when I'm with my board of directors, I'll, I'll talk to them. So then 
I got an email uh, months later, you know, two months later, three months later, three, you know, five words, Rob Walton will call you. And Rob Walton at the time is the chairman of the board of the world's largest company, Walmart. Yeah. And I'm like, who's Rob Walton? I didn't know who that was. <laughs> so I, you know, the early version of Google, I go yeah. online and I was like, whoa. And sure enough, he did. And, you know, it took a while. We had back and forth conversations, but eventually he invited me to come meet the CEO of uh, Walmart and, and he hired me on the spot and that started the company and the company and I is continue to work with blue sky, blue sky. Yeah. And, and blue sky is spelled B L U S K Y E. And, and why is that? Well, it, it, well, two reasons. One, my daughter's name is sky S K Y E. And two, you know, it was back in the day, 15 years ago when, and probably still today, you need a domain name oh, yeah. <laughs> for your website and for your email address. So along with the phone, you need the like .com. So, and there was no B-L-U-S-K-Y-E.com. Yeah. Uh, so we got the domain name and loved it. My wife came up with the name, Marcy. She, she was like, how about Blue Sky? I was like, that's a great idea. <laughs> so grab that and and uh so we've ended up as i said working with a lot of very large corporations we helped a lot of companies um set up their sustainability functions early on you know early work was convincing people that this is a good business proposition mm -hmm. largely and helping them set up inside their companies you know or you know people and organizations that could do this and then we worked with uh, industry associations. So we helped create the world's largest sustainability uh, association, which is called the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. It works mm -hmm. with all, you know, the fashion industry and the apparel industry all over the world. Um, we've worked with a bunch of foundations. Um, we've worked with a number of the big environmental NGOs on their strategies. And um, increasingly, we're working in, in uh, conservation and really endeavoring to help in a variety of different ways with a commitment that the UN has declared to protect and preserve 30% of the remaining wild places on Earth by 2030. Wow, awesome. So what, um, you know, and maybe to give props to shout out, what are some of the companies, if you're comfortable sharing this, that have uh, employed you, quote unquote, employed you and who are um, engaged, actively engaged in sustainability and now by the next iteration or generation, uh, regeneration besides Walmart? Oof, we've worked with a lot. I mean, um, You know, I, probably best to just have people go to the website. Right, go to bluesky.com. Yeah, bluesky.com cool. because we've got, you know, we've got case studies and we've got lists of, of the companies that are comfortable with us sharing that we've worked with them. And, um, but, you know, the, the next, it is interesting. I mean, 
from my vantage point, businesses are, are taking a leadership position in this work. Politicians are behind the eight ball for the most part. And, um, and I think people while engaged are also just, you know, they're trying to pay their rents. Yeah. They got families, they got jobs, they got busy lives made busier with the complexity surrounding social media and everything else. So it's, it's hard to ask people to, to engage in a lot of these issues that don't directly immediately like in their face yeah. address them. So that's why businesses are well positioned to, to lead because they have done the analysis. They understand it's, this isn't political. This yeah. is, this, these are just, if you draw out certain trend lines at certain rates of growth over certain periods of time, just like the natural step said, bad things happen. Yeah. And if bad things happen, bad things happen to their businesses. Right. And then they're not doing their job. So they're seeing so, they're seeing the common thread between, uh, for lack of a better term, global implosion and business implosion. Yeah, yeah. So it's paradoxical. I, I mean, I I see it as very paradoxical, but not contradictory. Mm -hmm. So and not hypo, hypo, you know, whatever I was going to say, hypochondriac. You know? Yeah, there's there's actually an illness. There's an illness. Yeah. So, uh, so you, you just talked about people. I've got a question for you. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I, I need to go in about five minutes. Okay, so one, maybe two quick questions. Yeah. Um, what do you wish most for people? To, to, to find uh, what they love, do it well, and, and come from that place in their activism right on wow that's crystal clear uh potentially quick win uh um, discovery and action that's beautiful uh, and so you're super busy uh have you have you got well nobody's gone to any concerts lately have you been to any concerts that uh, in the years past that stuck out in your mind at all as an example of where people are doing what they love and there's a community and there's a lot of good yeah. energy that's coming out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually uh, a good Mike back to the Trium group, Andrew Blum, who now is the CEO of the Trium group, which was this consultancy, the guy I went to college with who went off to the Marine Corps and then went to business school. And then I ended up starting this company with um, what you didn't know about him is he was a hardcore deadhead oh. and uh, with the resurrection. So Jerry Garcia, the leader and the, you know, this incredible guitarist and musician died many, many years ago. There's been these kind of cover bands playing for years, but all of a sudden the last three remaining members of the group uh, connected with, a pop star, John Mayer. Oh yeah. And they, yeah. they reformed themselves and they call themselves dead in company. And of course my friend, Andrew 
has become an absolute fanatic. I mean, if he didn't have to work and didn't have to raise a family, I think he would go on tour. Uh, so he's constantly going to things. And so we went uh, just before the pandemic hit to a three-day concert in Mexico wow. on the beach Whoa. that they did. And, you know, in an all-inclusive resort. So everybody in the entire place is a crusty deadhead. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, but it was it was great you know it's it's just again back to the human possibility human probability thing it's so improbable that all these different people from all different walks of life from all over the world generally older could converge in this place and commune around uh nature uh, nature on the one hand being out on the beach but yeah. around this music that meant so much to them at various points in their lives and then therefore so it's 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 like a it's a very unique environment let's just say that super fun we had a lot of fun i'm not a big deadhead myself but it was really really fun and, and so if, if somebody were to want to get a moment of inspiration would they find a, a good john mayer dead a Grateful Dead combo song, or uh, would, is there yeah. is there one that comes to mind, or is it just go check them out and and uh, experience? Well, I, no, a good one. A good one, I would say, is uh, you can go on like YouTube and and look up uh, Scarlet Begonias. Okay. Yeah, and and really, if you want to go hardcore, you do a Scarlet Fire. And that's Scarlet Begonias into fire in the mountain. They just, they, they go directly into it, jamming straight into another song. Okay. Right on. You know, if you're, if you're a deadhead, you would call it a Scarlet fire. Okay. <laughs> hey, hey, I highly recommend it. Johnny, Johnny lets it go. He All lets right. it go. <laughs> so uh, really appreciate uh, you taking time to share with us your experiences and your pearls of wisdom and uh, uh, the ideas that you think people can incorporate, like do what you love and uh, find a quick success in order to make a change in order to facilitate greater good. Um, I'm excited to see you again. I, th I think we're going to go rafting this summer. That's going to be fun. And um, any, any parting thoughts, anything that you'd like to, anything you'd like to share with folks? No, I mean, if, if one thing, it, it's really just, Ken, I, we've reconnected after many years of not actually being in close uh, proximity, certainly. And, and even in, you know, I had no idea what you were doing in your life and with your life. And uh, I'm just so uh, proud of you, hmm. bluntly, um, at the man you've become. And, and, you know, I always thought you were kind of a quirky quirky river guide guy and with a funny finger and you know <laughs> two funny fingers two two funny fingers one more fingers and and look at you and i love your book oh, by thanks. the way um really congratulations and um no it, what you're engaged in what you're trying to do here is makes all the sense i mean i, I talk about this with Marcy all the time that I think because of the way we receive our 
news. And um, because of the emotional response that certain kinds of news absolutely elicits in human beings. I mean, yeah. this is just, this is, has nothing to do with, you know, again, politics. And that these news feeds are all trying to get us to spend time with them. Hmm. They are eliciting those responses and the way those responses are best elicited is through outrage or bordering towards moving that direction hmm. towards drama, outrage, intensity, bad news. Um, and it keeps us engaged and going back. Um, but I'm quite convinced that the bat, just the same way back to the Russians, you know, most people are trying to do the right thing. They're, you know, they're making the best with whatever they got and trying to live a good life. And that story never hits the front page of the New York Times or Fox News. And, and, this and, and, and that's what I feel like you're, you're trying to do is elevate what is, I think, actually much more normal, much more common uh, than, than we think it is because it, it appears like everything is like coming, coming off. The wheels are coming off. Yep. And, and this conversation, Jib, is a perfect example of, of that, of, of speaking about, talking about uh, goodness, talking about change, talking about the impact that individuals can have. And I'm super, super grateful to you. appreciate the time and uh, look forward to more conversations. Same. Right on. Take good care, Ken. Thanks. Cheers. You too. Bye-bye. With every show, we ask our guests to share a video of them doing something fun. One of their favorite songs, a few lines from a book they enjoyed, or a scene from a great movie. Something that matches their hopes, dreams, and good work. And then we give this to you. Because laughter and beauty soothes, heals, and changes us. You can find and unwrap this gift on any of our social media sites. Thank you for participating in this podcast. Until next time, keep an eye out for change. Good change. And join our movement at kenstreeter.com.